G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. I invite you to imagine it, a Prime Minister, a man with a blue tie, who goes on holidays to be replaced by a man in a blue tie. A Treasurer who delivers a budget wearing a blue tie, to be supported by a Finance Minister, another man in a blue tie. Women once again banished from the centre of Australia's political life. You speak in favour of quotas. I am personally in favour of recruiting the best person for the job, whether they're male, whether they're female, whatever their ethnic origin. Those things do not matter to me. My concern uh, here is this. If you end up with a quota system, what happens then uh, with the person who does not know whether they've got their job because of their gender or whether they've got their job because of a quota? Is that not the most demeaning thing of, of all? To women. First of all, um, your cabinet, you said, looks a lot like Canada, and I understand one of the priorities for you was to have a cabinet that was gender balanced. Why was that so important to you? Because it's 2015. <laughs> Over the last century in Australia, women have come a fair way, from winning the right to vote, to the introduction of the Sex Discrimination Act, to the enormous increase in women's participation in the workforce, and more recently, election of our first female Prime Minister, there has been measurable progress for women. We've also witnessed, in recent years, the feminist movement take on the world. Feminism has featured in Houses of Parliament, at the United Nations, on the red carpet, on stage, in our bookshelves, magazine covers, Twitter feeds, and on talk shows. According to Google Trends, people search for information on the definition of feminism in 2014 at five times the rate they did just the year before. As journalist Jessica Valenti wrote recently, feminists are everywhere these days. Yet despite all this progress, there remains a glaring lack of women in our boardrooms, in our parliaments, in leadership and managerial positions. Women account for only 25% of the ASX 200 board members, and a total of 13 of those boards have no women at all. In fact, according to a study conducted earlier in this year, there are fewer large Australian companies run by women than there are companies run by men named John, Peter or David. In Australia, women hold only 14% of chair positions and 23% of directorships. The federal parliament is now just 32% female, and according to one estimate on current trends, it will take another 200 years to achieve gender equality there. Joining us today in studio to discuss this issue is Carol Schwartz. Carol is a leading business identity in Australia and a prominent gender diversity advocate. She's a member of the Reserve Bank Australia Board, a director of Stockland, and the founder of the Women's Leadership Institute Australia. Carol, welcome to The Policy Shop. Thank you, Glenn. And also in the studio today, I'm pleased to be joined by Professor Cordelia Fine, Based in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Cordelia's research, including her most recent book, Testosterone Rex, Myths of Sex, Science and Society, Explore and Break Down Myths Around Gender. Welcome, Cordelia. Thank you, Glenn. And on the line is business leader, company director and leading philanthropist, David Gonski. David is chairman of the Australian and New Zealand Banking Group, chancellor at the University of New South Wales and has a broad range of involvement with government, education and community sectors. Welcome, David. Thank you. Carol, if I can start with you, 
What do you think explains the lack of women in so many leadership roles in our society? It's actually the ecosystem in which we operate. I think that there are influences like unconscious bias. There are stereotypical roles that both men and women believe that men and women play in our society. And there are underlying belief systems that we need to tackle. Cordelia, in your most recent book, you wrote about the many gender stereotypes, often supposedly based in uh, biology, that pervade thinking about women and men. Do you think these stereotypes are important in explaining the underrepresentation of women? Uh, I think they're absolutely core to the many contributing factors that help to explain the underrepresentation of women. As Carol was alluding to, we have underlying beliefs about who's suited to what kind of roles. And these sort of gender stereotypes about what men and women are like and what they should be like are uh, at the basis of both conscious and unconscious forms of bias uh, that can influence perceptions of women's versus men's competence, of their commitment to the workplace, uh, of their likability and how well they fit in particular roles. And I also think there's a sort of these structural issues which are also based around these gender stereotypes because a lot of our organisations are sort of still moulded around this 1950s model of the primary breadwinner and the, and the homemaker. And uh, I think that's an issue not just for women trying to fit the fact that there are many dimensions to our lives around that old model, but also to men too who would like to have a, a sort of richer, more varied life. David, as you look through both the business and the community sectors in which you're involved, how do you respond to this underrepresentation of women? Well, the first thing I'd say is I don't disagree with what Carol and Cordelia have said. And, you know, the facts as I look at them, for example, at the university I'm chancellor of, I think that, uh, uh, you know, the representation of women has grown quite enormously over time. But on the other hand, in banking and in business generally, uh, whilst we're taking in wonderful and talented young people who are female at the beginning of their careers, somewhere along the line, um, they're either leaving us or alternatively not being encouraged to go further. And I think that uh, not only are the, the stereotypes that have been talked about uh, things that we have to look at, but we also have to move in business in particular to a much better flexibility and a much better response, in my opinion, in how we track and indeed help uh, a successful career to be worked out. And this needs a lot more planning, a lot more thinking, and a lot more rethinking, um, which probably comes back to the stereotype. And you've taken us on to some of the policy interventions that might make a difference here. And I'd like to then introduce a question of gender quotas, which has been much debated. In Europe, gender quotas are increasingly prevalent in lots of different organisations. In 2016, for example, Germany made gender quotas mandatory in business. So German companies need to fill at least 30% of non-executive board seats with women. In doing so, Germany followed the footsteps of other European countries, including Norway, Italy, France and Sweden. Carol, should we be looking to similar interventions here? Absolutely. I mean, the fact is that, you know, we've spoken very briefly about the systemic issues that we're facing here. And it seems to me as somebody who's been not only thinking about this for the last 30 years, but actually experiencing it as well, that not much has changed. And I think that when you have a particular status quo, you need to create paradigm shifts, which actually are going to move the dial. 
Probably 30 years ago, I didn't even think about quotas, but having been talking about this, observing this, living this, experiencing it for 30 years, for me, the only answer is quotas. So Cordelia, people often distinguish between gender quotas and gender targets. Can you take us through the difference and do you have a view? Well, I suppose quotas are distinguished from targets in terms of being mandatory through, for example, regulation. Um, But I think there's probably an extent to which you have targets with teeth, as are sometimes known within organisations where reaching those targets can be linked to um, remuneration and performance indicators, they can start to seem somewhat mandatory. So I suppose the the line can be a a little bit grey there. I don't care if it's a T word or a Q word, as long as we get the, the paradigm shift that we need. Targets with teeth, very effective. Quotas, very effective. But there have to be consequences you know, to uh, creating policies. If you have a policy that has no consequences, then who's going to follow it? So we definitely need policies that have consequences. David, your view on the use of gender quotas? I have a very strong view that I don't believe that legislation should be telling private companies who to put on their boards, nor indeed um, how many of a particular type of person or indeed, you know, what uh, gender, geography, or indeed uh, persuasion that person should be. Because I would be diametrically opposed to the concept of a quota that was, for example, put into the Constitution. Having said that, I do understand the frustration that Carol has mentioned. And in my view, there is a job here for the shareholders in companies. And so when, for example, the government says that in their own companies, that is the various statutory organisations and so on, that they they run and so on, that they're going to make sure that there's 40 or 50% women on that, they're perfectly entitled to do that. And indeed, I think it's a good thing for them to do because they're their organisations and it's their choice. In the case of private companies, I think this is a role for shareholders, the large shareholders, and indeed shareholders generally, if they believe in this, should be requiring, in my opinion, targets are better, but if they want quotas, that's fine, but not through government legislation. Because in my opinion, and I know this has become uh, quite uh, debated, that is a slippery slope. I don't disagree with David. I think that shareholder activism around around this issue is incredibly powerful. So, for example, the CEO of Australian Super, Ian Silk, has just said that he has written letters to those organisations that he would potentially like to invest in but feels himself unable or his organisation unable to invest because they have no gender diversity on their boards. This is really powerful. At the end of the day, having that sort of financial consequence, having that type of institutional investor saying that they will not invest in your company because the implication being that they're not a high-performing company because they don't have that gender diversity on their board is incredibly powerful. Cordelia, much of the conversation around quotas goes to the question of merit and a sort of implicit assumption that quotas will compromise the merit principle. Does placing quotas on companies or on even public bodies uh, run the risk of doing that? And how might we address that concern? I think one thing to bear in mind when thinking about this concern about compromising merit 
is thinking about what you need for a perfect meritocracy. So uh, you need to be very confident that your selection processes are completely unbiased by sort of arbitrary or irrelevant factors like what ethnicity someone is or what sex they are. You have to be quite sure that the criteria that you're using for selection are valid, that you have good ways of measuring them and that they actually predict performance. So, for example, particular forms of prior experience may be sort of overused as a criterion for uh, who's suitable for a job. And then in a sort of broader sense, you have to have a confidence that people are actually being given equal opportunities to be considered in the first place through ending up in the recruitment pool, um, having had the development um, opportunities and the particular experiences that they need to sort of be, be considered on the table. And I think what quotas do is they force a re-examination of to what extent those criteria are being fulfilled uh, in particular selection processes. And, you know, I think we have very good data to not be confident that all those uh, criteria are necessarily in place. So I think everyone should feel positive about looking closely at those um, criteria that you need for true meritocracy. But it is actually an empirical question as to whether quotas would compromise merit. And it's hard to get good data on that, but certainly the reviews of the effects of uh, electoral quotas have on the whole tended to point to the opposite so that you tend to actually have very well-qualified women um, coming who are placing perhaps less qualified men. So, I mean, clearly data are never clear cut, but I don't think that the evidence that we have at the moment is cause for concern. I find this really frustrating to think that quotas and merit are mutually exclusive concepts. I mean, the fact is that merit is determined by the group that's dominant at any particular time. So the concept of merit being some generic, objective standard of what's appropriate and what's qualified is absolutely not not correct. And Jennifer Whelan has done some brilliant work on the myth of merit, and I just suggest that everybody reads that because the issues around merit are completely mythical. David, if we are interested in changing the dynamics in the workplace, we run a risk, don't we, that if experience is the main criteria for appointment, then always we'll say there aren't enough experienced women and then always we won't see a change. How do we address this? Well, the first thing I would say is I don't actually buy the argument at all uh, that you know there is not uh, a good and potential candidate who's female for pretty well any job that I can think of. Obviously, there are extremes, uh, etc. And I think that uh, when you look at the word experience, um, experience is 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 not a black and white thing. Everybody has different experiences. Everybody has pluses and minuses. When you get an old fellow like me, they have the experience of many years in business. But a young person has the benefit of um, looking at uh, business and knowing and having experiences that are completely different to mine because of time and indeed their freshness and energy and so on. So I think really it is having an open mind that is important. And I must say, and I'm particularly involved more at the level of directors, council members and so on, as distinct from management, that's my job as chairman and so on, I have never had a situation where there wasn't ample talent who were female to fill the the slots and have a look. And I really don't see it as a major problem. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with David. I mean, the fact is that what does experience actually mean? I mean, you can have a set of criteria that are very traditional, but I think that particularly now on boards and in corporations, that the leaders are actually looking to gather people around them who have got different types of experience, who can make a different type of contribution to the the questions that they're dealing with and to the strategy that their organisations are taking. So I think that women in particular are very well qualified, but maybe just not in traditional ways. I just want to go back to a point Cordelia made to follow up on that. You mentioned the difference, potential difference in qualifications uh, of those who are coming into political life. There's an interesting argument from Rainbow Murray, who teaches politics at Queen Mary University in London, and she proposes that governments move away from implicit quotas for women, which frames women as outsiders and men as the norm, and toward explicit quotas for men on the principle that better qualified women will come into the pool that way. Should we think about merit slightly differently, therefore? You mean in terms of here's a maximum quota for the number of yes. men that we have? Yeah, I think that's a, I, I think that's a sort of, it seems like a small but significant point. And it really comes back to something that that I have sort of struggled with in the diversity literature around this idea that we've got our status quo and then you have to prove to us how you can improve on that through um, increased productivity and, and profit and so on and so forth. I, I think sort of flipping it around and not taking the status quo is something that we have to make an argument against, but maybe sort of thinking in a slightly more fresh and neutral way about the situation can be quite helpful. So limiting male representation rather than creating a floor for female participation. Yeah, I think that's a very nice way of thinking about it. I think this has actually been introduced into the thinking in Australia um, when Penny Wong actually set up Boardlinks, which was all about getting um, parity onto government boards a number of years ago. She actually introduced a, uh, a concept called 40-40-20, and it was minimum 40% men, minimum 40% women and 20% flexibility around the appointments, which I think is the perfect solution. It doesn't have to be 50-50 in every situation. I think that that is way too rigid. But I think if you talk about a quota for men of 40%, a quota for women of 40%, and then 20% floating, I think that's a perfect solution. So let's talk about organisations and the effect of diversity inside organisations for a minute. And, and David, I like to ask you, given your extensive business experience, whether you've noticed a change in businesses when the diversity changes? Oh, there's absolutely no doubt there is. Um, I think that uh, um, the concept of, uh, you know, disrupting the norm, and by the way, self-disruption is much better than being disrupted from outside, is usually a good thing. Bringing in people who have different ways of thinking, different upbringings, different ways of doing things is almost always a good thing because if what you're doing is good, it will survive. If what you're doing is tentative and not very good, it will be changed. In my experience, bringing in uh, uh, females has done just that. Just to add to that, David, I would say that, um, I mean, in a democratic ideal, we want citizens to have equal access to decision-making that, sh that shapes their lives. And a sort of social justice argument for having 
more balanced representation of both sexes in these kind of senior decision-making roles. At least from based on US data, both women and minorities are more compassionate, more other-minded and more egalitarian. And although, again, this is sort of data that's hard to sort of fix on causes and effects, it does seem like when you have women and minorities in these senior decision-making positions, their decision-making does tend to be a bit more broader and less sort of shareholderist, as we might say, so taking greater account the welfare of employees, communities and the environment. And, you know, we can have debates, you know, within the business community about whether that's a good or bad thing. But I think from sort of from the outside as a citizen, I suppose we would all want the kinds of decisions being made at those board levels to be more reflective of the concerns and interests and values of the community at large. If I can just chime in there, Cordina, I understand that, but I I don't see boards of directors and don't want them to be um, House of Representatives. And, you know, we can talk about politics. It's different to boards. Uh, and in boards, I think you're there for the company as a whole. But I do agree with you in this sense, that sameness is very dangerous. In my opinion, you know, if you just surround yourself with people who agree with you or from the same walk of life, you tend to relax and keep going probably in the wrong direction. The fact that you are, you know, I hope constructively tested with somebody who thinks differently is a wonderful thing. And I would think it's one of the basic tenets of being able to get good decision-making. So it raises the question about why we don't deliver on this, given in furious agreement about why it's in, <laughs> in all of our interests. Carol, the studies support the point David made, that greater diversity clearly creates better economic outcomes. Yet according to ABS data, the GDP foregone from gender inequality is an annual loss of perhaps $300 billion to the economy. How is it that we can know this rationally but not act on it? Mm, I know. It's nuts, isn't it? And that's why I think that David's point around shareholder activism is really such a crucial one because I don't understand why anybody would invest in a company that doesn't have a diverse board and diverse leadership for those very reasons. David, why has change so slow? We are being asked to change and often that change can hurt those who are actually doing it. Um, I've always seen it, by the way, and I've spoken to Carol about this in the past. I definitely see this problem of gender diversity, particularly on boards, as being a male problem, not a female problem. And I do know that a lot of my colleagues uh, complain that there is actually an active bias at the moment towards women. It is hurting them, and obviously in the past, We've been selecting these people for boards from 49 point something percent of the population. I think it's also quite a lot of uh, uh, females who'd be very good in these roles, you know, will need some encouragement to put their names forward um, because basically, you know, in the past they didn't know it was available. And second, they weren't encouraged to do so. The research shows that. Um women who have leadership qualities that are seen as real strengths in men are seen in women as being unlikable, aggressive and not appropriate. So there's a whole lot of reasons why uh, women are not putting themselves forward or why, if they are putting themselves forward, why that's seen as being inappropriate in a particular set of circumstances. 
And can I also just chime in there? I mean, I think that um, it goes even further than that. I mean, I've seen it so many times, and I'm sure Carol and Cordelia have also seen it that way, that when you advertise a job or a position that's, say, got six uh, points that you want to achieve, and they're in the ad or they're in the documents that are put out with the uh, job spec, um, generally a male like myself, if I can do one of them, thinks I'm an ideal appointment. If the if a woman thinks she can't do one of them, i.e. she can do the other five, she feels she shouldn't put her name up. And I think we have to change that. And I think, as I said earlier, I think there's a male role there that we have to encourage women to put themselves forward and, uh, you know, basically then make the decision based on them championing themselves as suitable. I think just to comment on that, um, I do think we have to be a little bit careful about placing too much emphasis on women's sort of lack of confidence and lack of absence of putting themselves forward. Um, This is something I've looked at a lot uh, in my research around explanations for women being intrinsically less risk-taking and less competitive, for example, which is often put forward as an explanation for women, why women are sort of less likely to end up in these high-level, highly competitive, uh, high-status roles. And we do need to be careful to think about the sort of general context in which women are making their assessments of the risks and, and the chances of success. Uh, so, for example, a study of more than 800 uh, management consultants at a uh, senior consult at a major consultancy firm by Michelle Ryan found that women were indeed, on average, less likely to take career risks and to make sacrifices to advance their careers. But when she looked more closely at that, you know, the sort of you know, which you sort of typically interpret as women being less desiring of leaning in, so to speak, but she found that this was because um, they perceived greater risks and fewer benefits from taking those risks and making those sacrifices. And when she looked more closely, this wasn't because women were less ambitious than men, but they had lower expectations of success. They had fewer role models to uh, look up to. They perceived themselves to have less support in their organisations, and they had less confidence that their organisations were a meritocracy. And I I think these are all sort of factors that, uh, you know, will feed into people's decision-making. If you're a young lawyer and you look up and you see very few female partners, it's very hard to have the same degree of confidence about your likely success as someone who's male and looks up and sees mostly people who look like him. So I I absolutely agree with you, David, but I think we also need to sort of make sure that we're not just focusing on women's confidence, but the kinds of things around them that would make them more confident about their likelihood of success. We've talked about business, but let's move into a different sphere, politics. And Carol, you've... uh been a very enthusiastic supporter of Pathways to Politics, a program designed to encourage young women to go into politics or to consider political careers, notwithstanding Cordelia's list of all the reasons they might choose not to take that risk. According to the Vote Compass data, about half of Australian women support the idea of using quotas to increase the number of women in parliament, but a majority of men are opposed to the ideas. I wonder why. How do we change the political system? Quotas. Definitely quotas. I mean, if you have a look at the Labor Party in Emily's list, um, which was actually introduced by Joan Kerner, I mean, they have got over 45% of um, their pre-selection criteria has to be given to women. They have many more women 
um, in Parliament than the Liberal Party do. And Liberal Party women are absolutely supportive of putting in place some sort of system and whether you want to use the T word or the Q word, that's going to allow them to get to more parity with men in the Liberal Party. And I think that it's so important for us as a society that we have close to 50-50 representation of both men and women um, in politics, sharing power and decision-making for us as a nation. And I think that it's really a huge loss to us when we don't. Cordelia, a slightly different take on this, if I may. Would it make a difference to policy outcomes if the parliament was more closely representative of the population? Yeah, I think tentatively the evidence suggests that, uh, yes, it would have an impact on policy. So, and, and this is talking about if the government was sort of more generally representative of the general population rather than just in terms of uh, gender balance. So it does seem to be the case that women legislators, for example, are more likely to vote for policies that support families, that support the poor, uh, that are supportive of education and healthcare and so on. So... And I think this does raise a, you know, a, a sort of democratic or social justice issue of the, to the extent to which uh, the interests of the population are being represented by those in government. The fact is that as men and women, we're all subject to unconscious bias. And this gets back to Cordelia's point before. If we're not seeing women as role models, as decision makers, as political leaders, then we can't imagine what that might look like. And it's going to make it very, very difficult to change the status quo. This is why something like quotas, which actually does change the status quo and creates a new normal, actually really helps the movement along. It has to be achieved in another way. Quotas can come from the, par the, the parties themselves. Um, groups of electors can come together to, you know, push and practice that, um, you know, as it is, that would just be the start of other people potentially saying, well, why aren't we there, et cetera. And soon you lose, in my opinion, the essence of democracy, which is that we are entitled to vote, hopefully, the way we believe is right for the country. And I think that for me, it's not opening up a can of worms because women are not a minority. We're 50% of the population and we should be represented in that way. Recent studies have shown that very few millennials, and in particular women, want to run for office because they're put off by the media scrutiny, by the discrimination they expect to face, and uh, they find politics a very hostile space for women. Are there things we can do to make politics a more attractive destination and to encourage more women to I actually think risk? that politics is a really hostile environment for anybody, men and women. So uh, until we address that, I think that it is what it is. In our Pathways to Politics program, we actually talk about if we had a critical mass of women in politics, would politics be played out differently. And it is only by getting that critical mass of women in that I think that actually the behaviours could in fact change. So let's head in that direction. As you think about the future, do you feel optimistic about the prospects for positive change in women's representation across the board in positions of leadership? Carol? I do. I feel very optimistic about it because I know that my generation of women 
and with the support of men like David, are absolutely going gangbusters that this change is going to happen and it's going to happen very, very soon. And I think that there is a groundswell. And also when you have leaders like Justin Trudeau and Macron in in France now who are saying, well, you know, this is now the 21st century. We do need a different type of leadership and we do need women standing shoulder to shoulder alongside us to create a much more powerful type of leadership. Absolutely, I'm confident that it will happen. Cordelia? Yes, I think I'm generally optimistic too. I mean, it's easy to forget how recent all this is. It was only in 1984 that we had the Sex Discrimination Act. That's not that long ago. It's in all of our lifetimes. And now here we are talking about gender quotas, and it's a heated debate, but it's a debate that we wouldn't have dreamed of, um, you know, 40-odd 40, 40 years ago. So although progress can seem slow, there have been some quite extraordinary changes um, just in quite a relatively short period of time. I mean, when I look at the scientific literature... A hundred odd years ago, the neuroscientists were arguing about whether women's nervous systems were suited suitable to voting, and and now we're now we're talking about uh, women's participation, equal participation in in politics. So it's a big shift, and I think we should hold on to that. David, are you optimistic? Yes, I am. I'd also say that the younger men coming behind, I think, have lived a slightly different life to what I did, and I can certainly say the university I went to when I did law. Uh, women were in the minority doing law. Now, if you look at my university, and I'm pretty sure it's probably the same at Melbourne University, the majority, small majority, but a majority nevertheless, of people doing law are female. They will have worked with them. They will have uh, taken it, I think, for granted that these people are worthy of being involved in all sorts of things. And that's where I take the optimism from, that both sides male and female, um, you know, will have a more open mind to the future. It's been a great pleasure today to talk with Reserve Bank Australia board member Carol Schwartz. Thank you, Glenn. With Professor Cordelia Fine from the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. Thank you. And to Chairman and Chancellor David Gonski. Thank you. I'm Glenn Davis. Thank you all for listening to The Policy Show. episode of The Policy Shop was produced by Owen Harsey and Ruby Schwartz with research by Paul Gray. Audio engineering is by Gavin Nabar. The Policy Shop is licensed under Creative Commons. Copyright the University of Melbourne 2017.